Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by our Sunday School teacher, Dr. Scott Powell, for this, the fifth episode of our Psalms season of Sunday School. And in this episode of our Psalms season of Sunday School, we are looking at book four of the book of Psalms. Scott, is that right? Episode five, book four. It's very confusing. Book four, A New Hope. Yes, that's, that's right. <laughs> is this the one with Jar Jar Binks? No. The, uh, this, he shows up in book three. Wait, okay. I, I have no idea. Okay. I don't... Okay. <laughs> I threw you off with Jar Jar You Jar did. Binks. You threw me that's, off with Jar Jar Binks. Sorry. Now I don't even know what to say, but that's fine. We will live. What I want to talk about now, though, is uh, we're going to talk, Scott, about book four of the Psalms. Yeah, the yeah. Psalter. So there's lots of different lenses by which we can look at the Psalter, right? All the Psalms together. Um, and one of the things that we've been focusing on, on is the way in which the Psalms come to us, which is that they are, they come to us divided into four, into five books, right? Which is not some modern construct or, you know, something that some, some modern uh, kind of commentator and interpreter put in. It actually is how the people who gave us the Psalms put them together. And if you're a Jew and you hear about five books, you're automatically thinking about the Torah. You're hearing about the, the Pentateuch, which is embedded in this. So what the Psalms are, are Torah, the, the word of God, the story of the people of Israel enshrined in song in a certain sense. And so they're organized in that way to kind of tell this story, which is a really beautiful way to look at them. So the yeah. idea of five books is a really prominent idea in Judaism. Maybe down the line, when we get to do an episode on the book of Matthew, Matthew actually will divide his whole gospel into five kind of chunks or five books because he wants to demonstrate Jesus as the new Torah. So again, that's kind of an aside, but this idea is a really prominent one. For this episode, which is focused on book four of the book of Psalms, we are going to kick things off with our friend Ed Condon reading for you Psalms 90 through 92. Ed Condon, Psalms 90 through 92. Here we go. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, and they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to remember our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands." He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. 
His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies, my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is nothing unrighteous in him. Okay, so in the last few episodes, uh, we've been kind of going through looking at how the Psalms, the way they're arranged in these five books, they're taking us through a narrative path through the story of the people of Israel, right? So a few weeks or a few episodes ago, we looked at books one and two, which were all about the Davidic kingdom. They're, they're about the happy times of Israel, right? That's how the Psalms kind of start. And we looked uh, during these Psalms of the happy times, the Davidic kingdom, the temple, everything's cool. We looked at Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 as kind of these bookend moments. I've, I've been really, because there's so many Psalms, I think the only sane way to kind of do a podcast like this is looking at the seams, right? Yeah. What hold the books together? Totally. Um, so these two Psalms, Psalm 2 and 72, which kind of bookend those first two books, they're both coronation Psalms, right? So they're meant to frame the books that celebrate the Davidic kingship, right? They're, they're coronation Psalms. And so they're holding together this really high concentration of Psalms either by David or about David or in honor of David. There's tons of Davidic Psalms, right? So they start really frequently, all these Psalms of David. And if you read, they kind of begin to taper off as you go. And the reason for that is that as we begin book three, which we talked about last episode, we're going to begin to see the collapse of the Davidic kingdom and the exile that follows. And so we've seen both sort of the rise and the fall of the kingdom. And again, it's, this isn't like a modern construct. This is the Psalms themselves telling you this story. 
And of course, the context for the Psalms from the beginning was always the liturgy. And so this is how we're meant to kind of walk through liturgically the story that we're in. And again, if these were meant to be sung by the people of God, both corporately and privately, then I think we should be meditating on these. These are these are good for us to remember our family story because that's really what they're doing. Yeah. We're going to start in Psalm 90. Psalm 90. The theme of book four, which we enter into today, is the theme, the Lord is king. The Lord is king. Which again, that doesn't sound like a huge profound idea. We know the Lord is king. We always profess the Lord is king. But I think to understand what the psalmist wants to tell us, we have to understand the story that the psalms have been telling us up to that point. Because to understand that the Lord is king, it is a logical following from the fact that the earthly manifestation of that is not king anymore. Uh-huh. We lost our king. Right. And so where is the kingdom? Where is the kingship? Where is this visible We have sign no king but Caesar, if you will. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, in a certain sense, there's, there's lots of desperate ways of which to deal with that exact problem. And we see a pretty crazy one show itself in the, in the gospels. Yeah. So the, the Psalms, um, actually kind of began with imagery of Solomon building the temple, right? He's building up the temple. And I think it's significant because that's where the liturgy of ancient Israel always takes place, right? Yeah. So we read that, that the people are worshiping with timbrel and harp. It was this back in Psalm in 33. Some, oh yeah. So no, earlier, no, I'm just okay. kind of recalling our So mind. we had begun both with the, with coronations and with the construction of the temple. Coronations and temple. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Timbrel and harp. So Psalm 33, I was thinking about this morning. Um, I, do you remember that psalm? It says, we worship the Lord of the timbrel, or it says, it's an imperative, worship the Lord, Lord of the timbrel and harp, yeah. which almost makes it sound like, have a party, right? Timbrel and harp, break out the instruments and let's party, which is not what it means. Those are liturgical instruments. And so we're supposed to worship the Lord in this, this particular way as a people together. And I think what's interesting is that a lot of these psalms find their true expression in temple liturgy, in temple worship, right? So these early psalms celebrate a couple of things, the kingdom, God's presence presence with them in the temple and his presence on Mount Zion. By by the way, Mount Zion and Jerusalem and the temple, all three of those things are kind of interchangeable with each other. Just kind of keep that in mind. So they celebrate, as we've said, God's kingship over the whole earth and over all the heavens, God's king over the heavens and the earth. But that kingship is manifest in a particular way in the Davidic kingdom and particularly in the temple of Jerusalem. So those three things, the kingdom, the temple, and the king himself we might call small s sacraments of God's kingship, right? There's there are these visible signs that God is present and active in the world. And again, we've talked about that a lot. So once we receive it as such, we have to see that for Israel, God's kingship was not conceived as something separate or opposed to the idea of an earthly king, right? Because for them, one is the sign and one is the reality. God's kingship and the earthly king are dependent on one another, Right. Um, His kingship over the heavens and the earth is manifest in this way. I think some people read the story of salvation history and look at the king and the kingdom as sort of a a concession by God, right? Well, God is supposed to be our king, but because the people wanted to be like the other nations, God gave them an earthly king. But that's Mm -hmm. not true. That's not the reality. They, They got a lousy king in Saul who was like the other nations. But God, God conceded to give them that guy who was terrible. But the idea of them being a king goes all the way back to Deuteronomy when in the time of the Exodus, it says, no, this is how your king ought to be. And I think that's just an important point because I think sometimes people read the story of salvation history. And again, these things kind of seem like Uh add-ons and really what the people of God need to do is sort of strip themselves of all these extras so they can just have their relationship with God, which is a very... 
And again, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but it's a very kind of Protestant idea. And there was a long time in my life where I sort of saw the church as an extra. It was, it was yeah. nice. I liked it, but it was an add on. What's fundamental is my relationship with God, my, my yeah. relationship with Jesus, Re- relationship, of not religion as it were. Yeah. These kinds yeah. Of which is a, yeah. a huge cultural thing that we right. have. I yeah. actually had a very good friend who he's one of the, the most important people in my life who led me back to Jesus. Yeah. Um, I actually don't think he practices the faith in any way anymore, but I remember him saying very honestly and not in a, like a negative or insulting way. He said, look, I think Catholicism is like Christianity for more advanced people. So like there's, there's Jesus and there's that relationship and that's, what's fundamental. And maybe some people progress in the faith to the point where they sort of need more and liturgy and ritual and all these other things, but it's kind of a more advanced version of it. That's a very, that's a crazy idea. It was a very interesting take on it, but it it, kind of helped to color my notion that, yeah, this is sort of an addition. Like this is nice on, not in a negative way, but it's just, you know, this is something else rather than how Israel sees this because the analogy for the kingdom is the church, but the kingdom is not an add-on. It's not an extra. It's fundamental to understanding who God is, is that he has incorporated us in a kingdom or in a church in our case. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Not even analogously though. I mean, not not analogously. The church is Israel and Israel is the church. Yeah. It's not an analogy. And that's honestly, it was once I began to understand the theology of the kingdom, that's really what brought me back full force into the church. Yeah. So I was like, oh, this is kind of, this is the same thing. And thank so, God for that, Scott, because the sort of, uh, the spiritual, I, I, it's strange to say this, but the kind of spiritualization of Christianity yes. by which um, I only know that I have a relationship with God by my sort of own internal, yeah. effective and subjective judgment of yeah. my interior life. It's terrifying. And maybe that's part of what it, even the psalmists are experiencing is like, mm. I can't know what's real here. But when I have the external things which God has given me, the sacraments, I can have, you know, to borrow from a Protestant hymn, sort of blessed assurance, yeah. right? That uh, when I confess my sins and I hear God the Father of mercies through the death and resurrection of his, uh, you know, and I absolve you of your sins, I know that God has worked and acted. When I hear hocus corpus meum, I know that over there is corpus meum, right? I mean, cool. Um, it's amazing. And so it's a grace that God gives us, like, um, doesn't leave us alone terrified with judging for ourselves whether what we experience in the divine is of the divine is real or our own imagination or projection or anything else. I'm so happy you said that because if that's our mindset then we can understand. So you, you talked about the terror of not having that. Right. That's what Salt Book yeah, 4 we've and talked about 3 that and before, 4 are like, doing. What is it like if you suddenly don't have... Yeah. You know, you ever read about those... I don't know the exact details because I wasn't planning to talk about this, but you ever read about those uh, Japanese Christians who, like, they were evangelized maybe by Jesuits and then the Jesuits probably were martyred or something and they kept the faith for generations, right. maybe uh, maybe centuries, I don't know. Centuries, I, I think. Without a sacramental life, but they can... It's, and they'd have they the became, altar ready, to, like, right. literally waiting and, and with all and the... Just, yeah, like, maintaining faithfulness, transmitting the faith, waiting for and the not just, like... Um, transmitting the the scripture or and a kind of solo scripture or a yes. scripture but believing in a sacramental faith into which their participation was limited i presume yeah, to baptism right. and i suppose marriage by you know marriage but like i presume there were times when they felt kind of extraordinary desolation when will god return to us and this is what israel is experiencing here and and the question beyond that question is god are you actually still with us or not yeah if this is the sign the manifestation of your kingship yeah. again if this isn't just an add-on an extra right. but if that is how you manifest your kingdom are you king anymore yeah and and add on to that it's not only that god is just absent 
our king has been overrun and defeated by a pagan king. Yeah. And therefore, we've lost him uh, and our God. What does that mean? Imagine if all the cardinals went into the Sistine Chapel for the conclave. Yeah. And then, um, like, tanks just stormed right through the Sistine Chapel. And Is that the verb? That's the verb. That tanked the verb? up. Yeah, just stormed right through the Sistine Chapel. And um, we would just be, I think, in this existential crisis of who are we if God has not yeah. preserved what we thought would be preserved in this way. Yes. And, and at the risk of countering your... Uh, you're right. But I mean, again, I think we talked about this last episode too. Take that analogy absurdly further right. and take away every instance where the Eucharist is present. Yeah. So all of the signs are gone. You, you might have an empty church with empty yeah. tabernacles and the priesthood. Because even if, even if, God forbid, that were to happen, we still have the priesthood. We still have the priesthood. They can still confer the sacraments. All of these things are still in place. Like there, this is a, a, a traumatic thing. I don't know how we but would get a new bishop of Rome, but there'd be some mechanism by which we could get it. There'd new be bishop some mechanism yeah. because we still have the priesthood. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, take out the priesthood somehow. Right. And again, that's why this is, uh, all this is just to, to, to stress the question. Yeah. Does the destruction of the temple, the, the loss of the king, does that mean you're not with us anymore and that you're not king any longer? And so the question, this, the, the answer to that question, which is kind of posed in book three, is given in book four. And the answer is, yes, you're still with us. Yeah. Yes, that, that is true. So when we look at book five, next episode, the question is going to be asked, okay, now what? So if the answer is yes, and we deal with that in book four. How do we get that? What is the conclusion of yes? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. Here. That's okay. what we get here. Um, and again, next week we'll talk about now what, what after that. But what we see in book four is that there, there's going to be a call for Israel to return to the basics. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of love that. And not in a sense of making everything abstract, like like you were talking about. Yeah. Not, not that you would do, but the sense that, well, it's just me and Jesus now. It's just yeah. me. Well, Jesus hasn't been incarnate yet, but right. it's not just me and God. What Israel must do to deal with the trauma of this, because Israel, what we know about the Jews in this time... They do not, they're not an abstract people. They don't operate in abstractions. They operate in concrete things, which is a very human reality, right? We're a particularly abstract people, I think, in our culture, but that's not the ancients. And so what Israel must do now is to wrestle with the question, to wrestle with the trauma of the collapse of the empire, the exile, is say, okay, now that we've lost the kingdom and the temple, now that we're in a foreign land, now that we're asking, is God still king of the world, knowing that there's not an abstraction to this, we know that God's kingdom is concretely seen in the rule of the Davidic king. So now that it's not here, is he still with us? And again, the, the psalmist is going to say an answer to those questions. Of course, he is still with us. But to answer that, the question they have to ask is, okay, is there precedent? Was there a time in salvation history where God was present to us in a visible way, in a concrete way, not in a mere abstraction, but without a king and without a temple? And so basically, can I, in the state of exile, still look for the signs of God's presence and his kingship of Israel, despite the fact that the symbols have been destroyed or or at least effaced? And the answer, of course, for the Jew is yes. So when was God's presence first revealed to Israel corporately in a visible, touchable, hearable way? Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on no, the spot. No, you're not putting me on the spot. The, the Exodus, the, the presence, Exodus. Of burning, the presence of God in the pillar of fire and the cloud Absolutely and right. the burning bush. Yeah, and you're my, I mean, this is this is exactly where the mind of Israel goes. So yeah. God's presence in the Exodus, again, this is the first time he is manifesting himself 
corporately to Israel, to all of them. He's appeared to different people in different ways before. But now, you know, not only the burning bush to Moses, right, something that you could probably feel the heat of, you can see the flame of, if you touched it, you'd get burned, right, all these things. But now there's the pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. Even the signs of the plagues, right, these very visible concrete things that you can see. Um, And then, of course, the construction of the Ark of the Covenant kind of following from that. But we see that God always seems to choose to manifest himself in physical, tangible ways, which, again, when I was trying to figure out the Catholic faith, when I realized, oh, this is the sacramental reality of the church. Yeah. It's consistent with how God has revealed himself throughout salvation history. That that did a lot for me. So Israel um, has to go back. And what Book 4 is calling them to is going back both in their heads and their hearts into the time of the Exodus, right? The Jews have to come to this sort of understanding that the forms and the symbols are meant to lead us to God, but they're not meant to limit God. God is not limited by those things. And I think we talked about that famous vision from Ezekiel last week. Mm his inaugural vision where he sees the, the, chari- chariot, the burning, chariot, the burning chariot wheel. In other words, God's presence is mobile. Right. Cause remember historically uh, there's tons of gods, tons of options for gods and all nations, kingdoms had their own God or gods, but their gods were tied to the physical location. So Babylon thought when they were destroying Israel, that they were destroying Israel's God, which, and that, that was, again, that was the notion because gods are tied to places. His temple is here. We destroyed his temple. We've killed their God yeah. in a certain sense. And then Ezekiel sees God's on wheels, God's mobile, which is a, a, a huge idea. Yeah. So Israel is now going to be invited to return to the idea of the Exodus and the Exodus has everything to do with wilderness, right? And the wilderness tends, the theme of the wilderness throughout salvation history, Old and New Testament, is God often takes people to the wilderness to woo them, right? Mm -hmm. To romance them and to remind them why we love each other in the first place. It's like a second or maybe third or fourth. Oh, that's so interesting because is there a kind of inversion there? I don't want to get you off track, but is there a kind of inversion there that Jesus went into the desert to be tempted instead of to be wooed, as it were? Oh, that's, um, maybe... Yeah, that, that's probably... Every time I ask God a question, every biblical scholar is like, gosh, why is this guy even on this show? No, These no, I think... Are... And I... then Scott's always like, oh, yeah, good idea, pat on the head. Nice job, buddy. <laughs> no, 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 no. Th- my, my mind was gosh. actually going to the next question, which is our relationship with Lent, which is accompanying Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness mm-hmm. where we are meant to be reminded of our relationship and all these things. But yeah, Jesus in a certain sense is inverting it, but it, but it's a both and because Israel is tempted in the wilderness. So it's, it's the, the, you can't separate the two because the, the idea of the wilderness, yes, we hear God's voice a little more clearly, but it's also a little bit scary and it's also yeah. tempting to fall into bad patterns. Maybe Jesus redeems the wilderness by conquering Jesus Satan Jesus is redeeming there. the wilderness. And therefore, I think that's a those who are wooed in the wilderness, it's actually a sort of prefigurement to the fact that Jesus will redeem it or it's a yeah. pre-grace, a grace that comes from the redemption of the wilderness. Yes, but... Even though that's true. No, no, no. But even though that's true, that doesn't mean that God, there isn't a redemptive quality to the wilderness prior to Jesus. Yeah, no, you know I, know, I mean? no, that, no, That's I the only yeah, I reason I yeah. want to caveat that. Yeah. Um, so for the prophets, and they talk about this a lot, the exile is actually cast as exodus in reverse. It's literally a reverse exodus. So what happened in the exodus, right? God rescued Israel from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. They brought them out of a pagan, he brought them out of a pagan nation under foreign domination and gave them the Holy land. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if the exile is exodus in reverse, it's going to be about a pagan country coming into the promised land, yeah. taking them captive, putting out of that land and putting back into slavery in a pagan nation. Yeah. So it's literally the inverse. So the, the exile is reverse exodus. And I, I don't think we have time for it today. There's a, 
an amazing passage that is noteworthy in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah gives the most succinct, clearest explanation for exactly what caused the exile. And believe it or not, it's... What does he say? It's an ill-fated jubilee year. Hmm. Is the, is, there's a lot of things that got the wheels turning, but the straw that broke the camel's back was a bad jubilee. So in other words, Israel had been, I'll say it really quick, Israel had been uh, you know, committing idolatry and breaking the covenant and being unfaithful. And so the pro, there's a glut of prophets sent saying, turn back, repent, don't do these things. Israel ignores them. Um, inevitably, you know, and, and they make alliances with pagan nations. They don't put their trust in God. They put their trust in Babylon and Egypt and all these other things. And eventually Babylon's troops show up on the horizon and they're coming to tear things down. And the kings begin to realize, oh, shoot, maybe we should have taken the prophets more seriously. And I believe it's Zedekiah. I want to say it's Zedekiah, the mm-hmm. last sitting th- king. He says, oh, shoot. Everything Jeremiah said is actually coming true. Uh, what do we do? What In desperation, he calls for a jubilee year. Yeah. And what's the jubilee? Jubilee came out of the Exodus time, and it's this year where they're supposed to... It's a year of release. Yeah. A release of land is supposed to go back to its ancestral owners. Yeah. All slaves are to be set free, and all debt is released. Yeah. Land, debt, and slaves. It's a jubilee. Everybody's free, which is meant to recall... The Exodus story, when God gives us a promised land, yeah. when he sets us free from our slavery, and when yeah. he relieves the debt of the Egyptians. Yeah. And the idea is, if you understand what God did for you, you're to do it for one another. Yeah. So in this last-ditch effort, as Babylon is on the horizon, Zedekiah's like, uh, Jubilee, everybody do a Jubilee. <laughs> set free your slaves. And they set free all their slaves, and presumably all their debt. And it says that the slaves were all going home. Praise be to God. They're like, oh, we get to go home. And then it says that the the wealthy class in Israel got a little bit sick of doing their own dishes and laundry and kind of got tired of not having their slaves. And so they changed their minds. And it's like, no, we want our slaves back. Yeah. And it sent the war horses out to recapture everyone. And that's when God steps in through Jeremiah and says, all right, that's it. Like, it's one thing that you kind of ignored the whole concept of Jubilee for so many years. Right. That's one thing. It's another thing that you made a covenant with me to do this, and then you took it back. Yeah. So you obviously didn't understand the Exodus in the first place, Jeremiah says. You didn't understand any of this. So because you can't set free, I will release you back into exile. Yeah. I'll release you back to the sword. And it says that is, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And again, the whole thing is reversed. And then the last sitting king of Israel is cut down on the plains of Jericho, precisely where the promised land was gained. But the whole thing is cast in this really powerful way is, is again, the reversal of everything. So in other words, they're going back to Egypt and Egypt is used throughout both the Psalms and salvation history, sometimes in a sort of metaphorical way, right? For a Jew, Egypt represents slavery. It represents foreign powers. It represents the enemies of God's people. There's a spiritual nation to Egypt. And so according to a lot of places, Deuteronomy in particular, if Israel breaks the covenant, she's going back to Egypt yeah. in a certain sense. So, so people could look back and see this. So in other words, because of Israel's sin, she's backed herself all the way up in the spiritual life and the physical life into where she was before. So if you're the editor of the, of the Psalter and you wanted to help Israel in her worship to learn that lesson, because remember what the Psalter is also doing is as they're coming back to the promised land, they're asking the question, okay, how did this happen? How right. did we get here? Right. And so if you're as the final editor trying to get Israel to learn this lesson, how do you think you might begin book four of the Psalms? So we saw a bunch of Psalms of David. What is the first uh, Psalm of book four? A prayer of Moses. A prayer of Moses. Yeah, right? to be evocative of precisely that. Yeah, which I think is kind of beautiful, right? Yeah. So it begins this prayer kind of like this. And um, 
It's a prayer not of David. It's a prayer of Moses. So Israel now has to relearn what God taught her because she needs to experience deliverance again, redemption again. Yeah. So it's significant in the book four with its emphasis on the fact that God truly is king in the midst of this doubt and darkness and despair created by the exile. Each Jew now has to kind of revisit the time when God was present to them without temple or kingdom because God... God's people have to realize that in the end, the kingdom and the temple were not ends in and of themselves. Yeah. And that was the other fault of the uh, pre-exile, that they're gifts from God, right? Um, to reveal his presence in the world, right? Because Israel uh, made an end out of those two things. Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah has a famous line. Jesus quotes it in the Gospels, but in Jeremiah 7 he says, you've trusted, he quotes that you've made this into a den of robbers. But prior to that, Jeremiah says, you guys have trusted in the deceitful words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And those words were your downfall. In other words, you, were, you, you went out and lived however you wanted to. Right. I'm going to commit idolatry. I'm going to live however I want live to. I'm going to abuse the poor. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to offer my sacrifice. I'll give my tithe. I'll do my thing. I'll check the box and then I'll go back and live how I want to. But it's cool because I went to the temple. It's like the I've sin of presumption in the confession. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kept thinking, <laughs> I kept thinking about the Godfather movies this morning. I was trying to think of an example of, because, you know, in the Godfather, I think they were like always going to confession and then going out and slaughtering people. Oh, I didn't remember that, but okay. Maybe that's not true, but I feel ah, like confession played a role in one I of the movies. I don't remember that either. But... I don't know the state of the Corleone souls, but, <laughs> but, I, but you, you can see to know the about notion. the Corleone's to know that there's a way in which we <laughs> no. can reduce the living, the living faith to yeah, that, right? Like, exactly right. I'll be fine. You know, people even joke about, oh, I'll be fine. I'll just take confession tomorrow. Exactly right. And, and, the, and yeah. there's a danger, a profound danger to that kind of reductive approach to faith. Exactly. And that's really important because they have to reflect on that. So in other words, they've begun worshiping the temple and the king rather than seeing him as the true sacraments. They, they became magical, right? Which uh -huh. again, you can see this, yeah. this notion. Um, I, there's, there's, this is what sometimes some of our Protestant friends fault us with, with something like Mary, right. who's meant to point us to the Redeemer, who is meant to be a model for us of how to say yes to Jesus. We don't worship Mary as an end in and of herself. Yeah. And, you know, I guess there's been times and cultures in which Mary has become almost magical and kind of an end in and of herself. But again, that's that's an abuse of what what she's actually doing. So that's an important kind of view on all this stuff. So all of that is to say Psalm 90 and 91 emphasize God as our temple. And that's kind of their opening theme, which, again, is really significant. So look at how uh, Psalm 90 begins. Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place. And when it says dwelling place, it doesn't mean just like any dwelling place. Right. That's a, an idiom for the temple. Right. You've been our dwelling place in all generations, right? Before the mountains were brought forth, uh, or ever thou hast formed the earth around the world from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So notice the affirmation here. You've been our dwelling place, not just now that we're in exile, but in every generation, including the Exodus generation and the generations before the Exodus. God's presence in the world is revealed by these symbols, right? But he's not tied to the symbols. They're designed to lead us toward this reality, right? Um, yeah, without going too deeply into it, I, I, it cannot be missed that Jesus actually then becomes the symbol that represents him, right? Yeah. He is the temple. So God, who was always our dwelling place, now that reality is manifest in Jesus. The sacramental reality becomes human. Which the Lord himself expresses explicitly. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and is, and right. is the reality. He, he <laughs> bread, which for every culture on earth represents life, yeah. Jesus becomes the thing that symbolized life. Yeah. He becomes bread. So yeah. all of the symbols then take on a new form. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Uh, a couple more things about Psalm 90. So you've been in my dwelling place, our dwelling place. Verse three, thou turnest 
man back to the dust and say, turn back, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, as a watch of the night. Thou dost sweep men away, they're like a dream, like grass which is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. You know how grass looks really fresh in the morning, but after the afternoon sun of August beats down on it, it just kind of looks, looks, well, at least my grass. Maybe you have a beautiful lawn, but I have a really lousy lawn. Yeah. Um, for we're consumed by thy anger, by thy wrath, we're overwhelmed. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days pass under thy wrath, and our years shall come to an end like a sigh. Our years of our life are threescore and ten, even by reason of our strength fourscore. Yet their span is just toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. There's more to this, but I, I was thinking about this. If, if we take the tradition that this is a, a psalm of Moses or a prayer of Moses, what do you think is going on with Moses? when he composes this because notice this is a prayer in a large part for God's forgiveness and I always wonder if this psalm or this prayer is written in the time of the golden calf right mm. in the in the so many of the Davidic psalms of the sorrow and recognition of our own sin and smallness probably in light of the Bathsheba incident I wonder if this is kind of something similar after yeah. Israel's darkest moment right, right. That we, you, I mean, how can you even look at us? We, we see how lousy we are and we understand the punishment because we see what we've done. Yeah. But then we get the other side of the conversation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's getting heavy. It is getting a little bit heavy. But look at 13 because then we get the flip side. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on thy servants. And again, remember Moses and God had that conversation, I think, in, in chapter 34, where God's like, you go, I'm out. I love this verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may be... Rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. <laughs> Which, again, can you picture that in the wilderness, yeah. in the wilderness wanderings? Yeah. Yeah. And particularly in Moses's audacious mouth after yeah. God says, I'm out. I'm not yeah. going with these people. Yeah. So I, I wonder about that context because then, and it frames it in a different way. Yeah. And it gives the exile that they're actually reading this in a different kind of coloring, right? Yeah. So I think it's very powerful. Yeah. Now look at uh, well, Psalm 91. Before yep. we look at Psalm 91, we will be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hi everyone, my name is Kate Oliveira and I produce this show, Sunday School. There is so much to love about this podcast. Scott offers such refreshing insights about scripture. A lot of his insights have helped me feel more comfortable with the Bible, and I hope they've helped you too. If you enjoy listening to Sunday School as much as I do, I'd like to ask you to please consider becoming a paying subscriber to The Pillar. The support of paying subscribers makes projects like Sunday School possible. We have several subscription plans available, including one that's only $5 a month. If you're already a paying subscriber, you're awesome. And maybe you could consider gifting a subscription to someone else. For more information, visit PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. That's PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. Thanks, guys. Hey, everybody, we are back uh, with Sunday School, our book four episode of our Sunday School Psalms season. And here is Ed Condon to read to us Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. 
that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory in your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. They believed his words, they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works, they did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness, and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan, and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company, and flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Saviour, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and the awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. They then despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds. A plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage, and he gave them into the hand of the nations, so those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low by their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Hey, everybody, we are back. That was Ed Condon with Psalm 106. Now we're taking your requests, and we're going to head straight over to Psalm 91. This is... I was uh, trying to... 
put Moses up in the chopper. Uh, yeah. Looking up oh, over, I was going to do like, uh, I was going to do like, uh, we just got a caller. Uh, this song is from Zippor is to Zipporah <laughs> oh, dedicated to you from big M. Oh, cut it out. <laughs> okay. Catch that. No, a, a deep, deep track biblical joke in there. No, why does Zipporah mean Zipporah is the wife of Moses? Yeah, there's a circumcision scene that's kind of weird. Oh, in Nexus wow, 15. that was yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I didn't well, really. This want is to a dwell. family show. <laughs> well, well, it's one of her sons. Get so. to it. Scott. All right, Psalm ninety-one. Psalm ninety-one. Everyone uh, begins by saying this. What begins by saying this? He and and Psalm ninety-one is not ascribed to anyone. A lot of these psalms are actually, you know, some of them are, and they're nice little clues, but some of them just aren't. Psalm 91 says, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high and abides in the shadow of the almighty, who says to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, which is beautiful. So, so we have these Psalms that are in this particular place, emphasizing God as the protection and the security of Israel, which is a really important point. If we're reading this in the exile, again, is God still with us? Not only is God still with us, but like, who's going to protect us from these Babylonians? We're, yeah. we're not just abandoned, but we're threatened. We're, we're, our lives are being sought here. This is yeah. not good. Um, and then I, I want to say a word about Psalm 92. And Psalm 92 speaks about uh, the need to trust in God's purposes, which is significant because, again, if you've dealt with the question, okay, God, are you still there? And you come to the conclusion of, yes, okay, I trust that you are. What's the follow-up is, okay, why? why? Why are you allowing this? Why is this happening? Which is a lot of what book three is dealing with too, right? Mm -hmm. But Psalm 92 um, says this. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, sing praises to his name, O Most High, to declare thy steadfast love in the morning and thy faithfulness by the, by the night. And it talks about other liturgical instruments um, that are to be used to worship the Lord. But I want to look at verse five. Verse five says, how great are thy works, O Lord. Thy thoughts are very deep. The dull man cannot know. The stupid cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're all doomed to destruction forever, right? This is actually language that's borrowed from the, the book of Isaiah, right? And yeah. Isaiah actually uses this language to describe the Babylonian empire, which is the ones who took Judah into exile in the first place. And even Assyria. And Isaiah says that the power of the pagan nations, which are mighty, Babylon was a big deal. They, they destroyed Jerusalem. Jerusalem was one of the most well-fortified cities on earth. Yeah. You know, it took the Roman Empire six years to destroy Jerusalem after the time of Jesus. Yeah. Because that's how well, it's on a hill, it's surrounded by deep valleys, it's easily protected. And so the Babylonians have shown themselves to be far superior to anything we've ever seen. And so these pagan nations, the psalmist and Isaiah say, yeah, they sprout up like blades of grass, right? They're like grass. They're impressive. They're pretty. They look good, but they're gone the next day, right? They're, they're nothing. So it's not coincidental that Jesus later on brings up this same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. If you yeah. remember, he mentions this in, in uh, Matthew 6, I believe, the consider the lilies of, of the grass of the field right here today, thrown in the furnace tomorrow, which you can take in a, in a couple different ways, right? That saying is only familiar if you know the context from Isaiah, first of all. And, and again, what's the point? In Isaiah, and we'll look at this actually next episode, the messenger of Isaiah is sent to explain that all kingdoms of the earth are passing, right? That even your captors, your oppressors, they're going to disintegrate. 
you don't have to worry. You have to undergo this, and this is this is real. I think sometimes we read these passages as though like, don't put your trust in wealth, don't put your trust in you know military, yeah. or your nice car, or your beautiful house, yeah. and all that's true because these things are like grass; they're fading. Yeah. But it's also saying the flip side: these things that terrify you, these political leaders, this conflict that's going on, this these horrible oppressive things, those also are like grass. That they're here today and they're gone tomorrow yeah. in the sight of God. And that's when we talk about the theme of book four being God is king. That's not a nice, pious adage. Right. It's saying, take this seriously and see what this actually means in your life. Uh, look at verse uh, eight. It says, but thou, O Lord, art on high forever. For lo, thy enemies, O Lord, for lo, thy enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Um, verse 10 but thou hast exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. A horn is what holds their oil. That's a celebratory. Um, thou hast poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. In fact, the psalmist's eyes have not seen these things yet. Only in hindsight of seeing what God has done in the past. Right. Do we now understand what he'll do in the future? So that's an interesting line. But then look at verse 12. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar of Lebanon. So the evil ones, these foreign nations, these things that terrify you, they're like grass. But the righteous man, he's like a palm tree. What does that remind you of? Do you remember how the whole Psalter began? Yeah, happy is the man who meditates on the love of the Lord day and night. Because he's like a tree. A tree. Yeah, the righteous man is like, who meditates, who haggahs on the law of the Lord. Uh -huh. And so this is a long haggah saying, hey, really work through this. Because the righteous, those who are united with God, with Yahweh, we would say in Paul's language, St. Paul's language, en, en, en Christo, in Christ, they're like this palm tree. You're not like the grass, which I, I just think is very, very beautiful. Um, I just want to just put a fine point out with verse 13. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bring forth fruit in old age and ever full of sap and green to show that the Lord is upright. He's my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him, right? So the theme of Psalm 92 is that only in the Lord, the God of Israel, can true security be found. All these other things are going to fade, which again, at the risk of getting preachy, um, yeah, it's easy to think like, oh, you know, my riches won't save me. My nice car won't save me. These things are, are fading. But again, I really want to emphasize that flip side because I live, I, we live in a profound age of fear, don't we? Even among believers, maybe especially among believers. And I think, I just think there's, a, and maybe I'm just accusing myself, so I, I can't speak for our listeners, but I think a whole lot of us really live our lives. You know, we talk a lot about the culture of death. And maybe that was more in vogue when we were in college. I don't feel like maybe it's not talked about anymore, but I think we live as though we're like, I'm not sure if this culture of death is going to win. Like I, I believe that God is God, but I, I think it might, it might defeat God. It might roll over him. Right. And when we might lose everything Yeah. and we live that way, I think sometimes we fall and, and that gives way to a paralysis and a fear. Yeah. Which again, this is what book four is speaking into. Like yeah. you can't live that way. Yeah. Even when the pagan oppressors overtake you. Yeah. Does not take God's sovereignty away. Yeah. It's accusatory toward me in the way that I sometimes kind of forget to to live this out. I, I just it's it's big in my prayer life. Book four yeah. is a big deal for me. So um couple words about Psalm 93 through 99. And I'm not going to read through all of them, but I want to say what they're doing next. So okay. each of these Psalms is meant to focus on one aspect or another of God's kingship. So in other words, the Psalms are putting their money where their mouth is. They're trying to demonstrate this to you. So 
these psalms, this, these seven psalms are celebrating God's kingship over three things, right? Uh-huh. First one is his kingship over creation. And I think Psalm 93 is a great example of that. God is king of creation, right? Uh, Psalm 94 talks about God as king over the pagan nations. So this nation that is oppressing you, that has taken you slave, God's still the king of it. So he's king over that. And then number three in Psalm 95 is a good example of it. God's kingship over Israel. Yeah. He's still king of Israel, even though it looks like Nebuchadnezzar is king over it. He's yeah. not. Neither is Cyrus. Neither is Caesar. None of these are. And they're answering the question, after all that has happened to us in exile, is God still sovereign, right? Is he, is he still Malach HaOlam? Is he still the king of the world, right? right. And they're, they're answering that and they're saying, here's how you see it. So you get this collection of seven psalms, which I'll touch on or undergird or celebrate God's kingship, right? Lots more I, I, I want to say about that. But for sake of time, I want to I jump ahead uh, to kind of the, the the so what of all this. And these are really beautiful psalms. There's a lot, I, I wanted to make a big deal. Psalm 95 is actually kind of where I want to spend a, a moment as we get ready to close. Psalm 95 is actually all about bodily worship. Again, remember, they're stripped of the temple. They're stripped of, of much of their liturgy. Although once they've come back to the promised land, they've rebuilt a smaller version of the temple. Like yeah. there's, there's some trappings there. Yeah. God's not present in the tabernacle, but we're, we're getting back to normal. And Psalm 95 is actually all about bodily worship of God. It's, it's Hagah. So if this is true, then Hagah, the snot out of this, like right. give yourself back to God. This yeah. is worth celebrating. Praise, shout, halal, turn, spin. All of these are very visceral bodily actions, uh-huh. right? They have to do with spinning around and lying prostrate and yelling out and screaming, right? They're, they're, they're uh, not stuff you would normally see in worship. And not that we have to do those, not that we have to, if you're, if you're charismatic, maybe, you know, there's, there's something here for you. If you're not, that's okay. But the idea is we're meant to give our whole selves to this. And again, the reason I bring all this up is that even though it's a, it's a bit subdued in contemporary liturgy sometimes, these, these gestures are still really important to us, right? We stand, we sit, we kneel, we dip our hands in water. All of these things are meant to remind us of the fullness of life that God calls us to. It's not an intellectual exercise, the faith, right? It's not just a coming to interesting moral conclusions. It is a full-bodied thing. And so I point out Psalm 95 for two reasons. Number one, all of these bodily uh, actions. But number number two, Psalm 95 does a, a brilliant job of celebrating God's kingship over creation as well as Israel. And so it begins by celebrating God's kingship over creation. Um, is that emphasizes his power over creation. Look at, uh, let's see, verse um, verse four, it says in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also in his hand. The sea is his for he made it. The dry for land his... too for is formed by his hand. Yeah, it's a little interesting to read a different v- version if you're very accustomed to the sound, the sound from the If you prayed it from the Lord right, exactly. yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. One of the things I would just point out for those who Please. do read this from the Liturgy of the Hours is so I'm looking at a couple of different translations right now. And if you're used to, for 40 years, I endured that generation. <laughs> yeah. Then when you're still thinking about the Exodus, by the way, right. The Psalms are, exactly, are not yeah. left there yet. When you read another translation, which says for 40 years, I loathe that generation. It really strikes yeah, you. If you're break. accustomed to, if you're accustomed to endurance, endurance and then you hear about loathing, loathing, it really points to the profundity of that sin. And it and points the to the profundity of the endurance it. too. Yeah, that's right. It's one thing to endure something that's just unfavorable, you know, an yeah. unpreferred activity. Is yeah. Say. It's another thing to loathe loathe 
to endure something that you love. Yeah, and, that's right. Yeah, so it, it, and again, this is Israel, ref, praise be to God, this is Israel reflecting on the fact that, oh, we actually get our sin. It's actually one of the first right. times in all of salvation history where Israel looks back and says, oh, we actually get it. Yeah. It's like the idea of, we talked about confession, yeah. right? It's yeah. the true penitent recognizing, oh, I can confess my sin because I actually get what my sin is. Right. Oh, and there's a kind of perfect story. contrition here, right? Like, yes, that's right. We, when you're perfectly contrite, you're, you, you're sorry for your sins because you know that your sinfulness offends God's righteousness. That's right. Yeah, and that's there's right. a kind of implicit, when you talk, when, if you put that into the mouth of God and recognize that your sinfulness offends God's righteousness, that your, sin, right. it provo- your sin provokes in God a contempt because of God's own perfection. It's really an extraordinary thing to recognize its profundity. I guess. Yeah, and we yeah. got to be careful of, of putting words in God's mouth. And this is well, what I the mean, scriptures proclaim. Yeah, yes, scriptures yes. Are, yeah. And this is Israel's understanding of God, yeah. which mm-hmm. does not have the lens of Christ yet. And that's the only reason right. I add that caveat. Yeah, sure. It's a, a lim- it's a true, without error, but imperfect or incomplete manifestation of God. Yeah. Right? Which we get the fullness of through the lens of Christ, which is important because... The Psalter doesn't leave you here. Right. It points to, okay, but there's more, right? There's something more to this kingship we lost, right? And even maybe something merciful, because it is true. All of us should affirm that our sinfulness is odious to God. Yes. And yet we know that God is merciful. And that's when it begins. That's the aha that it's meant to drive us toward. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I mean, it's one thing to talk about God being merciful, but if you don't understand the depth of our depravity and our sin, it doesn't mean anything. And that's why this is a brilliant moment on Israel's part. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing I just want to state about the creation bit, the reason it's stressing on emphasizing God's kingship over creation, like, yeah, of course he's king over creation. But the beauty of this is that in Israel's mind, creation is the one visible sign of God's kingship, the one visible sacrament, you might say, that has not been wiped out by the exile. Mm. It's all we've got left. And so no matter where no matter where you are, the rain still falls, the mountains still stand, the valleys are still there, the sun still rises, God still orders and still rules creation. Whereas, you know, kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, even the Davidic kingdom, they can fall. The sure sign of God's kingship and sovereignty over the world is creation. Yeah. Which sounds, you know, this isn't like hippie new age. You know, this is, this is Israel reconciling with, wow, it is sacramental that we actually see the perfection of God's creation. Yeah. And we can have that even if we've lost the temple. Yeah. So again, Israel is not content to make this reality abstract. Well, I'm just going to trust subjectively that he's there. I know he's there because I feel him in my heart. That's not enough for Israel. She needs visible, concrete signs. And she says, ah, this is the greatest one that we have left. Because again, his relationship with Israel is also about his relationship with creation. St. Paul really riffs, my doctoral dissertation was about this, that Paul talks about creation. All of creation is groaning out in travail, waiting for the answer of this question. God, mm-hmm. are you still with us? Yeah. Because St. Irenaeus says, right, that is not that which is not assumed is not redeemed. Either yeah. Christ came to redeem all of his creation, his beloved creation, or he came to redeem none of it. It's not yeah. just about you and me and our souls and our relationship with him. It's about all of creation resurrected and refashioned. So again, all of this is, is pointing toward the answer of this question. Are you still king? Yes, I'm still king. And here's how you know it. Not because you just have to believe it and trust me, but I'm showing you. Uh, Romans chapter two, 
I think it's chapter two, talks about this concept of, we call it natural theology, yeah. right? Where you have these Gentiles who've become Christians. And they're like, hey, we're not responsible for all these sins of our past. Right. Yeah, we worshiped a bunch of idols and owls and cows and everything, but we didn't know any better. How yeah. should we know? The Jews didn't tell us. Yeah. And Paul lays it out. He's like, no, if you've experienced creation, God's goodness, you can't deduce the Trinity or transubstantiation, but God's goodness can be deduced from creation alone. Yeah. And that that's a really beautiful teaching. Yeah. So because Israel has to go back and relearn the lessons of the Exodus, I want to conclude with looking at the two concluding Psalms, the binding of Psalm 105 and 106. Now, we're just having Ed read Psalm 106 to close us because it's a profoundly long Psalm. Yeah. There's a longer one we're going to look at next time. But Psalm 105 is recalling the Exodus event in terms of what God has done. So look at how it begins. Oh, give oh, thanks, give... thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sorry, I... Yeah. No, per... I've, I've been talking a lot. This <laughs> no, I just want to give you a break to sip some water. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell all of his wondrous works. Okay, do you you've remember, had your water. Do you remember what God says in the Exodus story was the purpose of the plagues? Do you remember the 10 plagues? They were kind of horrific. I do remember the 10 plagues. I know, but in Hebrew, they're called called the mighty deeds. Once there was a baby named Moses put into a basket. He was in a basket, J.D. Um, No, I don't remember what got to the... To soften Moses' heart. To demonstrate his sovereignty. To demonstrate his sovereignty. To make his name known. To make his name known. So again, this is very much an Exodus psalm. And and it it actually says, this is important for understanding the story, he says... The, point the thing of all is, of the this... problem is that I was just sort of going through, effectively, the Prince of Egypt, trying to I think know, if I could... Were... I could see it. <laughs> okay. No, I could see it in your eyes. I could saw, I saw the little rewind button going. Or maybe... I don't know if we have... We have all these Lego Bible story books, and I don't know if we have Lego ex- Lego plagues or not. I do. You we have Lego plagues? It. It's within a really big Lego book of a whole bunch of catechetical oh. and biblical stories. It's a big Lego volume. Cool. Uh, but it definitely... It's it's pretty intense with the plagues. Yeah, okay. They use a lot of red. Wow. Those red, imagine. clear bricks. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, no, but what God says is essentially the whole point of this story, the whole point of this Exodus thing, these mighty deeds that he wrought, rots, that wrought, he yeah. wrought, these things which God has done, had wrought, um, is so that four populations might know him and know his name. It is number one, first and foremost, Israel, who's forgotten who their God is, right? Which again, that's why we're revisiting that here. Yeah. Number two, it's Egypt. Because God is king of Egypt. He's sovereign over Egypt. This isn't some revelation that the Psalms give us. It's clear from the beginning. God wants Egypt. And we learn that during the crossing of the Red Sea, it's a mixed multitude of people. Tons of Egyptians apparently went with them because they recognize this is God. So he wants the Egyptians to know. He wants the other nations to know. And we see that manifest in the prostitute Rahab, remember, in the book of Joshua, who says, hey, we heard about what your God did in Egypt and our hearts all melted. She's a great example of natural theology at work, yeah. right? She didn't have any revelation. She didn't have anybody share the Torah with her. Yeah. She saw what God did in creation and her heart was melted. She responded rightly. Yeah. And then the fourth population is all generations are to remember what this is so they know God's name. So this is what Psalm 105 is riffing on, saying that's, you should know the story and now you should be... Uh, the, <laughs> One of the ways of making the signs of the time sane for believers is finding where there is rhyme in salvation history for where we are, right? How has God worked in the past? Because, you know, the the history never repeats itself, but it rhymes with itself. Salvation history never repeats itself, but it rhymes, right? You see signs of this. And so that's what they're meant to do. They're meant to meditate on the event of the Exodus. And then... 
What we close with, Psalm 106, tells the story of the Exodus, but in terms of the failings of Israel's forefathers, their failures, how we've blown it, and therefore it's an invitation, right? It's an invitation for Israel to meditate, to Haggah on the event of the Exodus, to read the Torah, to think through what God did for her in the Exodus, because they need to remember that because God was faithful in the past, he's going to be faithful in the future. He's faithful now. Therefore, I think what you said at the very beginning of the episode, it is the new hope. Yeah. This is episode four, a new wow. hope. Because we must not take this for granted. Wow. So that, that you, you that sealed was, this one yourself. I can't believe you planned that the entire time. I wish I that had, was but it just was a pretty right cool there. closure. And we will be back next week to close not only uh, in our next episode, not only to close um, that joke, I guess, or find out what's coming next. Uh, the return of the the return of the psalmist, I suppose. That's absolute. The return of the Divinity King. That's the theme of the book. Yes. Five. So yes. I'm getting too excited about this. Wow. That's, Is it fair wow. even to say that the Davidic Empire might strike back? <laughs> Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and that NGD production. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. It's Dr. Scott Powell is our Sunday School teacher. Our extraordinary executive producer is mm. Kate Oliver, who's doing a great job. And you are our listeners and subscribers. We're so grateful for you. If you want to um, subscribe to The Pillar to make podcasts like this happen, go to PillarCatholic.com and hit subscribe. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>